never be lost to some follow the compass or some follow the cross me i follow most compulsively till sirens call me off then i want the eyes closed following songs Hey, welcome to The OK Show. It's a podcast that features real musicians talking about their real lives, and it's brought to you by The Current. I'm your host, Andrea Swenson, and today's episode, we're going to be talking to the hard-touring rapper Astronautilus, also known as Andy Bothwell, about staying sane out on the road. We'll get to my conversation with him in just a moment, but first a little background on Andy and why I wanted to invite him onto the show. Listen for the true gods would to play tricks upon pretty blue eyes is that Clement the river or your village finally brought back to life Andy Bothwell is a man on the move few artists have toured so relentlessly freestyle so rapidly and shift between projects so effortlessly if you've ever seen him perform you probably already know that this is a man with a busy mind and a long train of racing thoughts In the past year alone, Astronautilus has toured most of the U.S. and Europe. He's performed alongside Justin Vernon and S. Carey and Ryan Olson in their bizarro Southern Rap Meets Electro project, Jason Feathers. And he's assumed the role of the town priest at the Eau Claire Festival, inviting fans into a confession booth to share their secrets and receive a one-on-one freestyle. When he's not on the road playing music, he's also been on the road exploring his new loves of riding motorcycle and taking photos. Even in his quieter moments, he's still in motion, still moving forward. For anyone who's dealt with anxiety, you might already get a sense for where this story is going. What happens when we don't stop moving ever? When we don't take the time to care for ourselves and give ourselves a break? Well, in Andy's case, his darker moments have thrown up a wall between his mind and his creative output, and it culminated in what he describes as a simultaneous nervous breakdown, existential meltdown, and midlife crisis back in 2012. Since then, Andy started speaking out about the pressures that musicians and other creative types face to constantly make new material, and how he's regained a sense of control and found a new sense of peace. He's getting ready to put out a new record early next year, and he says it's the most Andy record he's ever made. I couldn't wait to ask him more about what it's been like to share his mental health experiences with the music community and how it's helped him to move forward as a healthier and ultimately happier person. Hi, Andy. Hi, how's it going? (laughs) Good, how are you? I am well. Coffeeed up. I'm good. Thanks for coming over to my house. Yeah, I think it's a lovely home. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Turns out we're neighbors, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I know. It's very exciting. Yeah. I saw some video of kind of a panel discussion that you were on with Adam Levy. And I think maybe you've done more than one of these types of events now because you participated in Dissonance as well with uh, David Campbell. I'm just curious, you know, as a public person and as a musician in the Twin Cities, you know, what has it been like for you to participate in public conversations like that about the more personal side of your life? That's really helpful. Like, it's really <laughs> helpful. I think when I first got asked to do Dissonance, uh, David Lewis, who was at the time working with Nally Smith, approached me about doing Dissonance, and Dave Campbell's the host. And, and it was sort of this feeling of like, cool yeah sure sure but like you know why me and then when mm-hmm. I started to started to really think about things I was like oh yeah like I have a whole host of problems that a lot of musicians have that aren't necessarily like sort of seen as the big perils of being an artist of like drugs and alcohol and, mm. and that sort of thing and I, and I think there's um, a lot of small demons that end up building to those sorts of things 
that I have learned to cope with, that I went through, um, that a lot of musicians sort of suppress with bigger things and don't ever deal with. And I think if you don't learn to deal with the little things, uh, it can get out of hand really fast. And it, it made me way more comfortable about talking about my problems. And so it made me a lot more comfortable with my problems. And that's a huge step in getting better or functional. Like I'm always kind of a stiff upper lip, super positive. It was really nice to feel like oh yeah like uh, we all are crazy <laughs> like, we're exactly. all crazy and it's okay to be crazy um so let's all talk about it so we can be less crazy that's basically the mission of my podcast we're all crazy yes it's fine yeah we're all <laughs> we're all gonna be fine what you're saying really resonates with me because i'm a minnesotan and i was raised in a very stoic way yeah, yeah. um where you know the feelings were not always the main thing on the on the menu of things to talk about but what was it like for you growing up in florida I feel like I have a very unique and wonderful open relationship with my family. But I think even that, you know, there's always a generation gap. They're always still your parents. There's always things you just can't talk about. Or you don't feel comfortable talking about. And for whatever reason, too, I think even since I was young, I was a really shy kid growing up. A really good example is like when I first started to learn how to rap, like I didn't tell anybody in my family. Wow. When I first taught myself, because I thought my parents would disown me. Like I literally thought they would kick me out of the house. And they were completely not those people at all. They were like, oh, that's great. We're super proud of you. This is really exciting. Like the complete opposite response. But I have always just been very private and I think presumptuous about how other people respond mm -hmm. to kind of the raw, more like awkward parts of me. And it isn't until in the last few years of my life that I have been really comfortable being really honest with my parents about who I am in every way. You know, a lot of people are guilty of like, you know, giving 75% of yourself to most people or less. And then, you know, sometimes we're lucky when we have a significant other or a best friend that really knows. And, you know, and they get all of you and that's really rare. Being an adult is really tough. <laughs> like, it's way tougher than like all of the like, uh, like that you experience as a teenager or all of the like desire to achieve as a, you know, when you're in your young 20s or whatever, but sort of feel a little bit held back financially or whatever. Then it's tough in like real like wait, your friends start dying or like your biology changes and your brain doesn't work the way it used to and your elbow hurts for some reason and like and I'm like 34 in a few weeks like I'm not an old man by any stretch of the imagination but I'm already feeling you do already feel those changes you know I'm essentially probably at the midpoint of my life and it's like um you start to see the end of the hallway. Like, it's so far away. Like, it's so far away, but you would now acknowledge that it's there. You got to pick up every stage. You got to pick up every stage. Mm -hmm. Must be the season of the way. Must be the season of the what happens when you don't take care of your problems when you aren't managing it well i'm fortunate i'm fortunate i don't have a the addicts gene when i slip I, there are other ways that you're you're self-destructive there's other ways that i'm self-destructive and i think more than anything I just stop being productive as an artist. I become, you know, I'm outwardly lazy, but I think I'm lazy because I'm scared of something, you know, like, um, and so I'll kind of sink into like a video game Netflix hole or whatever, you know, and especially now that I live, I've lived alone for like three years and it's really easy to do when you live alone because there's no one to 
keep you in check or there's no one to like perform for like right. at least like you know when you have roommates at least you kind of sometimes like there's times where you just start working on things because you just feel bad because they've seen you in your sweatpants for like two days straight and you're like i should do stuff <laughs> um but like when you live alone there is nobody there to tell you that and you can just like pizza luce will come at almost any hour you need and like it's fine um and so it's really easy to sort of slip into that like you know like unproductive sort of wormhole or like the semi-productive where you like i sent an email today like great cool something will happen that will trigger like a, a fear in me or something that will make it a lot harder for me to be productive is it easier to manage the stress when you're home or when you're on the road road there's a set rhythm you, there are times when you just go sorry can't do it tour and people will understand that or they won't um it is only now that like i have been spending more time home mm-hmm. in the last few years that i am learning how to be a normal person that goes to movies and like recycles and like you know like that doesn't just live in a hotel like I'm I'm learning how to be a normal person and so it's a lot easier for me to be on the road because that's what I've spent the last almost 13 years of my life doing what do you think drives you to want to be away in motion you know there's a lot of things I mean I love the travel um I love that I have somehow built a career that allows me to go tour in places that no one else tours in like I love that I get to go to weird little like Czech villages and stuff like I love all of that even when you're playing your worst city ever there's still probably 15 people there that are super pumped to have you whereas when you're traveling you're just a tourist no matter what there's someone there that's like really excited to have you and if you wanted a private tour of that town they would probably be like yeah absolutely what are you doing tomorrow like and that's such a crazy wonderful luxury I mean, beyond that, too, like, I like to be liked. And tour is just like a parade of applause and congratulations. So, like, when you're home, there's no one to be like, good job on those dishes. But, like, when you're on tour every night, there's someone, even on your worst show, there's someone that is like, I think you're great. Like, and that's awesome. That's great. And I'm that, I like that. I need that. Do you experience a transition period of coming back home? What is that like for you? I almost never tell people specifically the day that I'm coming home. I like to have a buffer zone of a couple of days that I, I like to then decide when people see me and I go out into the world. And generally when I come home, like I literally come home, I've been doing this forever. I come home, I order a large pizza from Luce, a large of their spinach salad, which is the, God, it's so good. <laughs> and um, now that they deliver Izzy as ice cream, I order like two pints of ice cream. And I order this and it's like, cool, I have this large pizza. I have this salad. I'll eat half of it now. I'll, I'll drink coffee and eat a little thing for lunch. Basically, I have now established food for two days. <laughs> that I can like just Netflix and sleep and sweatpants and take the longest showers. And like I do this every single time I come home and it is like a, this, the most like decadent and absurd thing um that actually doesn't sound that decadent it sounds very necessary yeah it's probably necessary yeah it's true when you're on tour the most valuable commodity in your life is privacy the only time you're alone in a room ever on tour is when you're in the bathroom it's the only time because i share hotel rooms with people your van you're backstage you're on stage you're in the crowd like you are never alone and so when i come home like living alone is just man it's the best and your photography has been amazing thank you that's a big help to, to have a creative outlet, having things that are not music in your life um, are super important. Your desire to s- strive and succeed becomes so like overwhelming and all-consuming that you spend all of your time working on your art. Every book you read, you are kind of like 
researching for your next album, every movie you watch, every album you listen to, and it, it can very quickly become joyless. Mm-hmm. And so like there's been a big shift in my life towards hobbies um, and like mandating hobbies. I really relate to what you're saying about music kind of taking over your life. For me, it's a little different because I'm on this side of the microphone, um, but I also have a life in music and I realized that my hobby was going to shows and my job was going to shows and my hobby was putting on a record to relax and that was also my job. And it's like, what do I even like that isn't music? I kind of had a crisis of like, yeah, yeah. who am I? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I think that's a real easy thing to like romanticize. Uh, I love music. It's my love life. Music. Yeah, music is my life. Like, <laughs> get in freaking line. Like, we're all, we all love songs and we all have songs that are our jam. Like, it's cool. Like, congratulations. You love music. It's your life. But I think that there's a point too, like when you do start working, I mean, I totally get why like artists like David Byrne write books and do weird sculptures and things like I totally get why you get into that I totally get like we all want to get eye-rolly about Jewel putting out books of poetry or whatever like but like I get why you do that like because you need to do something else and ultimately like if we, if I had continued on the same path that I was going down in that year in 2012 I think probably in five years I would have hated what I was doing and nobody wants that. Like nobody, like we got into this work because we wanted to do the thing that we love. Like we wanted to love our job. And if, you know, like there comes a point in time where like you have to, yeah, you do get this sort of weird, like, you know, early midlife crisis where you're like, who am I? And like, why am I doing this? Should I still be doing this? Um, yeah, and I'm really glad that I found hobbies. Like, I'm really glad. Like, and I'm, re- I'm really glad that we had that year in 2012 because I think it will allow, going through that and making that realization will allow me to continue to do this for the rest of my life. Fashionable dress of canes and signs Traits are never peril like a judge of character And bro, she never missed the lift the bump and line But fingertips are drifting Miss a bit from time to time And this is how we Well, and you were talking earlier about You know, I'm 34 as well And 2012 you would have been, what, turning 30 Or around there And as you do get older You start to think about stamina and momentum And what can you actually physically yeah, handle for sure um, So I think it's important to try to start thinking about How you're going to get through this in the long term like I feel like in the 20s it's kind of you're just thinking about like two weeks ahead and that's about it yeah yeah you're thinking about how am I gonna make rent mm-hmm. like it's pretty much the concern and yeah now it's like thinking now you're starting to think long term and now you're like you know you know I would like to have kids someday like I would like to own a home you know like all of the you know American dream things and like you're getting to that point where you're like cool like I don't worry about rent anymore but I, I don't have a retirement plan. Like, you know, like I make enough money to make a living, but I don't make enough money to have a career. Right. You know, like I don't make enough money to raise a family right now. You know, and so there's a lot of those things that sort of can be super overwhelming. I had a professor in college. I tell this story a lot, and it's super important to me. And I, as a professor in college, I went to school for theater. And so I was in my acting class, and we were he assigned me this scene from Julius Caesar. And I was playing the role of Brutus, and Brutus is like, man, it's the guillotine for male, male actors. It's one of the most difficult roles that you could play. But I was having a conversation with my professor, and he's at the time probably 60 years old, and he's a really brilliant actor and a teacher named Michael Conley. He was like, what are you, what are you like, 20 now? And I'm like, yeah, I'm 20. And I was like, I bet you're thinking, like, you're going to graduate 
and then you're gonna have it all figured out you're gonna move to new york or whatever you're gonna have it all figured out and then you, what's gonna happen is you're gonna get to new york and you're gonna have to work some crap job and you're not gonna get the parts that you want or the job that you want and and you're gonna think like man if i could just get this work you know like you know then i'll have it all figured out and then maybe you'll start getting that work and and you know you'll you'll be dating some dumb girl or whatever that you don't really like and you'll you know, kind of you know screw around or whatever and then you're just like oh, if i could just get a good girl in my life then I'll, then i'll have it all figured out and every time you like achieve this like step you graduate college you get the job you get the girl you get the apartment or whatever you have this like six month window where it's, you just got it all figured out and it feels great and everything feels great and then something just totally goes to hell on you the girl leaves you or the girl gets pregnant or you lose your job or like you know whatever you, your friend dies or you get sick and every time you know you get through that thing and you think well if i just get you know if i'm just 30 then i'll have it all figured out or if i'm just hit 40 and i have it all figured out and he's like, I'll tell you what, man, I'm 60 years old. You never get it all figured out. You never are going to get it all figured out. And he's, he said, as soon as you figure that out, that's as close as you'll ever get. And wow. it is the best advice I've ever gotten. And I forget it all the time. And I have to remind myself about it all the time. But it is the nail in the friggin' head because you never get it. You get like the world gives you six months where you've got it when you figure it, when you make the new step. And you're like, this is the best. And then it presents you with a whole new host of problems that you just didn't anticipate. And it never ends. It never ends. We're all striving for a thing. And there is part of that that is necessary to be a productive and successful and interesting artist, not even from a business standpoint, but from a creative standpoint, to always want to strive for something more creatively. But there's also part of that that can be completely unhealthy. Personally, economically, artistically. So it's like a weird, like um, learning how to harness that like horse, like learning how to like, you know, tame that Bronco and ride it, but without, you don't want to break it so much that it won't run fast. And so like, that's a weird balance that can affect you as a business, as an artist, as a person, as a boyfriend, as a friend, as a son, like it, all of that, that drive has to be there. You can't lose it but you can't let it totally run you over, you know, like you can't let it buck you off. And that's a, that's the struggle like over and over and over again. It's like finding that balance. I feel like I struggle with that from both sides because I want to get better all the time, but I'm also terrified of looking like down the ladder mm-hmm. and falling off. Yeah, for and sure. It, it's almost like, I guess, you know, people call it imposter syndrome, but I kind of feel like I've done a lot of my career like on my own or like kind of asserting myself into these situations and getting higher. And I feel like I'm kind of building like this black tower that could be knocked over at any minute. Oh man. Yeah. There was like a, I had a realization maybe like a year or two ago, we were playing in Moscow and we were like at 5 PM on the main stage at the biggest festival in Moscow. And there was like probably five to 10,000 people like watching me cheering along. And that was like, such a surreal moment even like in my most like wild fantasies when i really just like was like asleep in the honda and was just like really god it would be great if this was my life those fantasies like i passed those two years ago three years ago like my wildest imagination is in the dust and that is amazing but at the same time like you feel the blocks getting smaller on the black tower the further up you go and whether it's a reality or not doesn't matter because it's perception that affects you every minute of every day. That's, I mean, another thing too is like I now have the good fortune of knowing people that are rich and famous. I don't fantasize about that anymore at all. I like going to the grocery store. I like being able to go to a coffee shop and have like 
the kid at Jimmy John's be like, hey, aren't you astronautalists? Not like have 30 people try to take my picture at Jimmy John's. Like, I like that level. That's way cooler to me. So what are some of your strategies when you want to reconnect with kind of the reason why you got into music in the first place? Like when you want to sit down and start seriously writing a record, how do you get back into that part of yourself? The good news is, is that the world is never short on inspiring and exciting and beautiful and thrilling and outrageous and angering things, like things that can motivate you to create. The inspiration comes from all over for sure. And John Congleton, who produces my records for me, he and I are both inspiration junkies. Mm. And so we are constantly like looking for the thing. And whether that thing is academic or artistic, like we're reading about the cool things in science and things to be outraged by politically and, you know, movies that make us laugh. And, you know, there's everything is inspiring and everything is exciting. He's got, he's a very like dark humor about the world and I have this sort of like relentlessly like the world's a beautiful place we're all just wonderful little creatures like you know but we both ultimately come at it from the same approach and I don't record like other people I don't record in dribs and drabs like I record sort of like in a 10 days straight or two weeks straight I kind of write and plan and plot and research for two years so that when I go into the studio it's like knock the whole thing out in 10 days we set aside two weeks for this last one, and I think we did it in 11. So the record is done? It is done, yeah. We finished recording last summer, and then we finished mixing in January, and now we're like real close to getting the businessy stuff sorted. The assumption, if all goes according to plan, knock on wood, there will be music that will be appearing in November. Fantastic. Yeah, and then the album will be appearing early next year. Funny enough, it's definitely the most rap record I've ever made in my life. Um, I feel like I am a rapper who's been making indie rock records for a long time. And this is a rap record. There's no guitar. There's almost no live instruments. It's, live instruments are very like sparing. And when we do live instruments, the live instruments that's most predominantly used throughout the entire record is a uh, full brass band. Wow, like, like, interesting. Uh, varying from like New Orleans, like trad jazz to like Southern, like high school marching band. But it's pretty much electronic drums, synthesizers, kind of loops and stuff, and a brass band. There's like a little bit of organ, a little bit of piano, but that's about it. So like just from sonically, it's like all heavy, super heavy bass. It's like real like tapping into my Florida and Texas roots. Like it's, yeah, like 808 drums, like a lot of that. There's only one song that I don't rap on. And it is a huge like kind of curveball departure from the rest of the record. But the rest of it is like super rap and the choruses are real sparse, much more like kind of repetitive like rap choruses. Like a lot of my choruses in the past have been super lyric heavy and melodic. And this is not always the case on this. It's a lot more um, yelly. But it's been real fun. It was amazing. It was so much fun to make. It was probably the most fun I've ever had making a record. And this record is like, I think probably the most Andy that's ever appeared on an Astronomist record. It's definitely like a lot of like a vent on it for sure. There's angry parts. Like, really? Yeah, super angry. A lot of frustration like vented on it. It felt good. I'm really curious to see what people think. There's one song in particular I'm real curious to see what people think because I've kind of make fun of fans on it. Um, and I will stand by my statement. But like, I'll see how people feel about it. So, you know, that's uh, part of the process, being scared of your own work. If you're not scared of your own work, then you're making really boring records. I agree with that. Yeah, and ultimately, like, every time, every record I've ever made, the song that I have been, like, convinced people are going to hate this is always the most popular song on the record. Yeah. Every single time. I was convinced that people were going to. Uh, the little tenuous grasp I had on fans... When I put out Trouble Hunters, I figured they would all leave, and that's still the most popular song I've ever made. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous. So, it's like, so the f- I've learned to understand that like, it doesn't make you less scared, Yeah. but it's, I've learned to like 
understand that the fear is maybe a good sign. Yeah, fear is good. I mean, you should be scared. Art should be scary to make. I kind of have unpopular views on this a lot, the difference between art and craft and the difference between art and entertainment. I'm pretty like wary about the term art and like I don't try to throw it around willy-nilly and I even get weird about calling the work I make art because I feel like there's times when I have made art and I feel like there's times when I've just made some songs and that's like I'm trying to make art all the time but I just don't think it always works that way and I, and I think that there is a necessary element to fear a fear that's required in making art I think there should be there's an element of fear and an element of concept and thought and labor that goes into it and that's what different differentiates art from craft and art from entertainment Father up in Burlington, coke factory Still in the coast, sipping on the daiquiri Actually, imagine me Dating the same damn freak for a week You Well, I have to ask you about the yeah. um, confessional booth at Eau Claire. Oh, yeah, for sure. It was an idea I've had for like five years. I had a kind of sort of existential crisis with freestyling a couple of years ago where I got really bored with it because it was the thing that got me in the door. It was before I ever made records. It's what like got people's attention. It was the thing that I was sort of preternaturally good at. But then it kind of became like a parlor trick eventually. I'd done it so much. And it was like, okay, we'll stop feeling sorry for yourself and figure out a way to make it interesting again. So I started to kind of really brainstorm like hypothetically about how I could make it interesting. And I started to really kind of mull over like how can I change the parameters of this thing to increase the odds of special moments happening. And I had come up, came up with the idea of this confessional booth, but sort of always thought like, when will I ever be able to do that? Like, <laughs> cool. What yeah, kind yeah. of avant-garde indie rock yeah, festival like, would allow such a yeah, thing? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like, who is going to get, essentially, who is going to, like, yeah, this is a great, terribly unprofitable idea. Here's a ton of money to do this thing. Like, because it's, you have to build a booth, and then you have to have a, people to come in. And so the idea of, like, for those that don't know, like, about setting up a confessional booth, having people come in and confess their sins, and I freestyle absolution back to them. So, yeah, I had this idea forever, and I just happened to be out to dinner with Justin and some friends, and he, this was years before Eau Claire's was public information, and he was like, yeah, so, I, you know, I got a bunch of bands that I want to work with, but I'm kind of looking for, like, non-musical things. Do you guys know anything? And I was like, well, I got this idea. And I explained to him over dinner, and he was like, you're in. So they were fantastic, and they gave me a, a really generous budget. My hope was that, like, if one-third of the people that come into the confession booth take it seriously, that will be a wild success. Um, that was, like, my wildest dream. Yeah. And the, the strange thing that happened was that probably 90% of the people that came in the confession booth confessed actual, real, serious confessions. Wow. Which was, the first day, super exciting and hard. We didn't really know what we were doing the first day. You know, second day we really figured out a rhythm. Day one, we sort of like kind of left it open and just let people come in and that right. was too much. And I, your empathy sponge goes dry eventually. And boy, oh boy, there was a moment during the day where someone was confessing really real things. And I just, I was like, I, I can't wait for you to stop talking. And it's because I just had heard super heavy stuff all day long. And like yeah. on a scale of one to 10, I'm cheating on my wife or husband was like a six. Wow. And I heard infidelity all day long. Like that was sort of like, that was easy to deal with. Super heavy, raw things. And the thing that was really amazing and beautiful that happened day two was people started coming there on purpose and alone. 
Mm. People who like no one went to that festival alone. You're all there with your friends, and people like left their friend group to come alone to confess a thing, and that was, man, that was insanely heavy and beautiful. There was a lot of like really real stuff that was dealt with, and when I would tell this to people, when I would explain it to people what I was doing, there's a lot of reactions. All my friends in Europe thought that I was going to be murdered for pretending to be a priest in America. <laughs> and I was like, nah, I think maybe you have a, yes, we're very serious about religion and guns, but not quite what you guys think. And then I think like, you know, a lot of people were worried that people would be mad that I was, that they thought I was taking it as a joke or putting a joke about religion. And that was a, the opposite of the intention. We tried to be very, the confessional booth is inherently a Catholic thing. Every aspect of it tried to be very non-denominational. Like I didn't want it to be a joke about religion at all. I wanted it to be what it ended up being. But I think that there is something that's very beautiful about the act of confession and necessary about the act of confession, sort of getting back to what we talked about at the beginning of the conversation about mm-hmm. like not having people to talk to. I think there is something really amazing about having someone that is not connected to the situation. This is right. why people talk to their hairdressers and their bartenders and their cab drivers. And so I hope that people would take it seriously for that reason. I didn't think that they would. That first day was super hard. I didn't really know what I was getting into. And, and fortunately, I had like two of my friends really helping me out. My girlfriend was there. Like... I was, had all these bands that I was going to like, I was taking breaks so I could go see bands. Right. I like went off into like the employee parking lot and just sat in the grass. Like, oh. you know, it was, it was good. Like I had to go through that way. So we figured out how to do it the next day. And once we figured out, like we set time limits on it, we do it an hour and a half at a time, take yeah. a big break. Like that made it so much more manageable. I hope I get to do it again. Because yeah. I got so much out of it. Personally, and I feel like everyone that was involved got so much out of it. Do you ever uh, read the Post Secrets blog? Yeah, yeah. Kind of reminds me of that. Like, it needs to be anonymous to get that personal, but then everyone feels like they're part of a community, even though you don't know who said it. When you hear other people talk about their problems, it makes you feel, like, not alone. And it makes you feel a little bit more normal. Because this, like, yeah, we're all a terrible mess. We're all a terrible mess, and we're all trying our best. And... You know, that was, man, there was some real, super, super heavy stuff that people talked about in those confession booths. How would you respond to something that was... You're not going to provide an answer to a lot of people's problems. And I think ultimately the thing that people want to hear is they're normal. Mm -hmm. And that sort of became the realization in my mind was like, ultimately we all want to feel that we're normal. And when we realize that everyone, other people have problems like ourselves, then our problems become a little bit more manageable. I tried to stray away from ever offering like a real solution. There was a few like issues with drug addiction or whatever that was like, you need to do this. Mm-hmm. Like this is a thing, you need to do this. I don't want to give like hard and fast advice because I'm not an expert. And ultimately you're dealing with such a barrage of varying fields of problems that no one really is an expert. Um, if you are, if you think you are, you're Dr. Phil and you're an asshole. Um, <laughs> and so like, ultimately I, I tried to talk about experiences in my own life that I had gone through or people I knew had gone through that were similar. Cause ultimately like, man, oh man, you get to be a certain age, you know, someone who's gone through it, mm-hmm. all of it. Yeah. Um, and generally you get to be a certain age, you've gone through most of it yourself. And so you can say like, look, this is how I handled the situation. I don't think this is necessarily how everyone should handle the situation, but more importantly, I've been in this situation and like that's a real valuable thing to hear yeah. when you're when you're struggling with something to just have someone go yeah man I've been there too a lot of people's problems stem from the fact that they don't have any 
community or don't have a family um, or they don't have a group of people to go to and that's why religion works why AA works and why Doomtree works like because it provides (laughs) these things and ultimately I have learned in my old age to not begrudge anybody for any of those things if that's the thing that gets you through if that's the thing that makes you feel whole if that's the thing that makes you a functional happy normal relatively happy normal relatively normal person in society man paint your face like a clown like go for it like go to church every weekend go for it like I'm all for it there is specific people that came in there that man I will never ever forget like that were such a beautiful tragic you know wonderful things and I I feel really lucky to have had those experiences with those people well thank you so much for talking to me and sharing these stories Thanks I'm gonna give me. you applause all right there you go that's good I needed it, it hasn't, <laughs> hasn't happened all day I am always like mind boggled by celebrities that get mad about people recognizing them because there's like there's two categories of people that like people that get nervous when they don't get recognized for a long period of time and then there's the people that just hate it at all costs and I definitely am in in the nervous category when like no one has applauded for me or said that they think I'm great it's been eight hours someone tell me I'm great I'm just that insecure I need to be told all the time I think that's what the cat was trying to say I really appreciate your cat support of my art and my craft (laughs) Thank you, Andy. Thank you. Just to taste the truth. So we're gonna die. So are you. We chase the light. Cause we need the moon. This is our science. Well, that's that. Those were the highlights of my conversation with Astronautilus. Really enjoyed talking to him. Thank you to Andy Bothwell for coming over to my house and for putting up with my cat who hopped up on the table and was trying to shove his whiskers in Andy's face while he was talking. Andy handled it like a total pro and just kept going on like nothing was happening. I really appreciate that. This has been another installment of The OK Show. It's a podcast where real musicians talk about their real lives. It's brought to you by The Current, and my name is Andrea Swenson. Don't forget, you can always follow me on Twitter at SlingshotAnnie. You can find all of the episodes of The OK Show on thecurrent.org, as well as on iTunes and through all of your favorite podcasting apps. We put a new episode every Wednesday, and next week I will be talking to Maida. I know I promised you that a couple weeks back, but we've been both dealing with a little bit of illness going back and forth, so we finally are getting together, and I'm so excited to share our conversation with you. Until next time, it's going to be okay. Tell me where you're going with that knife in your hand.